0: of us who grew up in and around the baby boom generation, grew up on the rock and roll of a bunch of young, rebellious bands, and so we're entering, actually we've been in it for a while now, this kind of weird time when these now, you know, geriatric rock stars are still out there in one manifestation or another, the Who, Pink Floyd, uh, the Stones, and others are still touring in one manifestation or another. Leonard Skinner, uh begins their farewell tour in May. Their album, their first album, which included the song Free Bird, was released 45 years ago in 1973. I mean, Mick Jagger is 74 years old. He's still out there. One article I read about some of these old rockers still going strong, was entitled, Learning to Wink at Death. Now, the truth is that most people do not wink at death. In fact, most people live either in some kind of active denial of death, as Ernest Becker wrote in his classic Pulitzer Prize winning work by that title, Denial of Death, or in some suppressed quiet anxiety about it. I can really only think of three categories of people who are able on one level or another to wink at death. First are the young and the reckless, right? When you're in your teens, maybe your early twenties, it's normal to assume that you are somehow functionally immortal. I mean, I did stuff when I was younger that would just scare me to death now. Uh, Maybe you can relate. This is often the age of what we might call stupid risk-taking, because many young person operates as if mortality simply does not apply to them personally, right? But time marches on, and pretty soon, I don't know, maybe in your 30s or 40s, I suppose it's different for everybody, but you start figuring out on some level that you are not, in fact, indestructible, that you will not go on forever. Maybe you start getting, uh, membership requests from AARP, sort of, sort of like hazing of some sort, or people start asking you about retirement, that sort of thing. Even so, there are, there are plenty of people who wink at death during this stage of life because they don't much care about life. Maybe they've gone dark and cynical. Maybe they've experienced life mainly as nothing but hard and disappointing, in some cases even treacherous and hopeless. These are folks who wink at death simply because for them life is such a struggle that there doesn't really seem to be much to lose. A third category of people who wink at death are people that most of us know or have had the privilege Of knowing. We had a great tradition at St. Matthew's Church. I served for 17 years out in Pennsylvania of doing the annual Easter egg hunt on the Saturday before Easter. So yesterday uh, out in the cemetery, the old cemetery out in the church. There's young Clara putting flowers on the cross. Girls love it when I include pictures of them. Lydia out there in the cemetery collecting Easter eggs. Uh, This is a tradition that carries on even today. And many of the names of the saints laid to rest out there in that cemetery where our children ran around hunting for Easter eggs had been faithful members of the congregation whom we knew and loved. I'm talking about folks like John and Ann Flayhart. On my very first Sunday there, John was an usher and he came to me as the service was getting ready to start and whispered, Pastor, my wife, Anne is dying at home, if you could stop and see us. Later... Uh, we would have, years later, the service for John, and he was laid to rest next to Anne there in that cemetery. Or folks like Gordon and Florence Wells. Gordon served in the Army. He was a race car driver back in the day. And uh, after his funeral, actually, Anne uh, uh, Florence died first, and after her funeral, uh, there was her her birth date and her death date on the tombstone, and then for Gordon his birth date with a dash, and then a blank. And I always felt like what a faithful and brave thing to visit so often with your own name there, that blank next to it. Eventually we would also have the service for for Gordon, and he joined Florence there. I'm talking about people like Clyde and Mary Griffiths, Clyde was well into his 80s before the family was able to talk him out of getting behind the wheel and driving, uh, but they couldn't talk him down off the tractor. He was a farmer, and he was a little bit diabetic, so he would sometimes kind of pass out. And so what Clyde would do, he rigged up a couple of old leather belts, and he'd strap himself into the old international harvester, so that, when in fact he fainted, you know, he'd stay on the tractor, and more than once, the tractor was found up against a tree or a fence line out there, and uh, Clyde was, you know, sleeping. Um, Clyde and Mary gave the ground for the fire hall to be built upon, and so at Clyde's funeral, uh, they rang the emergency siren. You could hear it a mile off in the distance at his committal service out there in that cemetery behind St. Matthew's. I'm talking about people who, when they knew that their own time was drawing near, they did not panic or fear. Instead, they used every bit of energy they had left to speak words of love to their loved ones, to speak words of faith, to choose the hymns and the scripture readings that would be read and sung at their funeral, which was just around the corner. I believe that folks like John and Anne Flayhart and Gordon and Florence Wells and Clyde and Mary Griffiths winked at death because they had lived lives of such simple faith. They had been part of the community of faith in Christ and they trusted at the end, trusted with their whole beings that the cross on Good Friday did not have the last word. Not for them, not for anyone. I've had many similar experiences here at Prince of Peace. Art Kwame's funeral was in February. Last fall, Art said to me, uh, Pastor, he said this with a grin on his face, I think my time is drawing near, and I really don't feel like I need to live into one more Minnesota winter. <laughs> he was serious. He wasn't joking. He, he thought, this has been enough. This is what a life. And uh, we're all on God's time, so Art did make it into the early part of this Minnesota winter. So looking out at the snow and the frozen river from the bed that had been set up in their living room there, we shared communion one last time, and then Art sipped some coffee through a straw, and a week later he passed away. People like Art and the others I've mentioned and so many others known to us winked at death, not because they were so young and careless and callous that they didn't know any better, that's for sure, and not because they had sunk into some kind of cynicism that no longer cared about life, They winked at death because they were people of deep and quiet Christian faith who understood on some level that at the end of the day, at the end of their day, at the end of all days, the last word is not the death of Good Friday. They believed that Easter this morning was in fact on its way. In spite of all the apparent evidence to the contrary, they were given the gift of faith and hope. And this is why I love the ending to Mark's Gospel so much. If you get home and you open your, your Bible and you see that in the, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the final verse is not, in fact, verse 8 of chapter 16. In fact, it goes on, 9, 10, 11, 12. You should know that there is there is overwhelming consensus among biblical scholars that when Mark laid his pen down, when he was done writing The first gospel written, this gospel, it was after he finished verse 8. This verse. And Mark knew what he was doing, so they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Pen down. All done. Now, how in the world could you leave the story right there? The faithful women had come to the tomb early in the morning because they knew Jesus was dead and they knew what tombs are for. Tombs are for saying goodbye. Tombs are for fear and some level of denial. Tombs are final. But the women find the tomb open and empty like a a door to some new place. The door is open to go through. If I could, I would come too. The body of their friend, their teacher, their Lord, their Jesus, the one who had given them so much hope, the one who made them feel like they were worth something, like children of God even. The body of Jesus was not in the tomb. Sadness piled on top of sadness. Just a short time ago, Jesus was hailed as a king as they waved the palm branches and cried out Hosanna as they came into Jerusalem. All of the miracles, think of it, all of the healings, all of the preaching and the teaching is now reduced to this, running from an empty tomb, filled with terror and amazement, unable to say anything to anyone. That is how the earliest gospel ends and I could not love it more than I do. Because... It proves Mark's faith, because Mark knew that you were going to be here this morning. He knew this this story could not be contained. He wasn't trying to tell us the whole story, give us all the resurrection appearance, appearances. Mark believed. He knew the story could not be contained. He was simply telling those of us who would later find our own lives wrapped up in this drama of God's salvation, how the story was shot out of a cannon in the first place. Let your song be sung. If you listen, you can hear the silence say, when you think you're done, you've just begun. Love is bigger than anything in its way.
1: to But the path is made by you As you're walking Start singing and stop talking If I could only
0: Taylor says this about that first Easter morning. This may be why all the other gospel accounts of the resurrection tell us not to be afraid, because new life is frightening. It is unnatural. To seek a corpse and find the risen Lord, none of this is natural. Death is natural. Loss is natural, grief is natural, but stones have been rolled away this happy morning to reveal the highly unnatural truth. By the light of this day, God has planted a seed of life in us that cannot be killed. And if we can remember that, then there is nothing we cannot do. Move mountains, banish fear, love our enemies, change the world. Most of the faithful saints I have been blessed to know who were able to wink at death even when it drew close for them, most of them knew all too well the Good Friday realities of this world. They had lived through wars, through depressions. They had lost dear friends, family members, children for some of them. But the core affirmation of our Christian faith That rock on which all is grounded is that Good Friday does not have the last word. The resounding proclamation of Easter morning is not only is the cross not the last word, but stomach cancer is not the last word. Starvation and sickness in refugee camps do not have the last word. Divorce, loneliness, fear do not have the last word. School shootings, Do not have the last word. The core affirmation of our Christian faith, that rock on which all is grounded, is the resounding proclamation that with God, believe it or not, the last word is the triumphant power of life that is embodied in the risen Christ on this Easter morning. That love is bigger than anything in its way. This is why we can receive the ashes on Ash Wednesday and be reminded of our own mortality with the words, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's why on Maundy Thursday we can recall our own betrayal of Christ in the night in which He was betrayed. It's why we can linger at the cross on Good Friday. It's why we can sing the Hallelujah Chorus in spite of all the un-Hallelujah stuff going on in our lives and in the world around us. Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen for you. That's what all this hoopla is about. Christ is risen for you. This is the bell we are here to ring. Our prayer is that you hear it. Love is bigger and anything in its way.